Hi and welcome to The Three Good Podcast, a weekend podcast where I talk about all things to do with positive psychology, well-being, resilience, mental health and emotional intelligence. I'm your host, Sukhpabia. On today's podcast, I'm really pleased to have a guest on with us. His name is Mark Gilroy. Hi, Mark. Hello, Sir. It's great to be here. Really pleased to have you on the podcast with us. And um, this is pretty cool for me because it's Mark's my first guest. So I'm pretty, I'm pretty excited about that. That's pretty cool. And one of the things that I've thought about as the podcast has been coming along is there are lots of people out there who can help me explore these topics of positive psychology, well-being, resilience, emotional intelligence, mental health in lots of really good ways. And I'm really looking forward to what those conversations will help us to explore further. Um, And if you've been a regular listener so far, then you will also be aware that what I like to try and do is help people understand and explore what it means to live a better life, to to be our best selves. And because we don't tend to explore those in a useful way. We don't tend to talk about them in ways that people can relate to and that it's accessible to them. So I guess initially, Mark, that's my, that's my first kind of piece to you is, uh, what, what do you think on that about how accessible are these topics or these concepts that, we, that, we, that you're going to be helping me talk about today and other podcasts that have kind of um, episodes that I've done so far? What's your thoughts on that? Thanks, Sig. And first of all, thank you for inviting me. And the pleasure of being your friend yes. is something I'm super proud of. If you, um, if you check out my Twitter bio, I talk about being a psychology geek, but also um, there's something in there about being very partial to podcasts, and I am just addicted to the world of podcasting. <laughs> so the idea that I could be someone's guest on a podcast is just, you know, nirvana for me. So I'm really grateful. I think... I think all of those themes, particularly particularly psychology, which, as we know, is is, is such a general and and a broad church, yeah, yeah. Um, is something that has become more and more accessible and more and more ingrained into the fabric of of how we all work, how we all think about life, and I think that can only be a good thing. I remember when I when I did my um, psychology degree, yeah. it was considered as quite a quite an unusual thing to focus on and quite a rare thing whereas now I believe it's one of the most popular subjects yeah it is um, yeah, yeah secondary school and, and at university yeah. level which is which I think is a very good thing um you know thinking about thinking yeah is yeah, the essence of it um and the more that we can do that I think the more that we we can think to elevate ourselves to you know higher levels of awareness yeah, and I really like the way that you say that. It's about it's the thinking about thinking, you know. In it, in in a fair few conversations recently, um, I mean, you, you and I are in a, a, a similar field of work around learning and development, and it's something I'm really attuned to. Is is how do we help people to do that better? You know, how do we help people to do that reflective practice on how, where am I? You know, what am I thinking about when I think about the things I'm thinking about? Which is a really odd statement to make, but you know, when I think about the things I'm thinking about, how does that help me to be a better person? How does it help me to do the things I need to do in a better way? So I'm really glad to explore um, this with you today. And you got in touch and asked if we could uh, explore optimism. 
Mm-hmm. What, what what was it that that made you say, can we talk about this, please? Look. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's actually been a bit of a passion uh, area of mine for a little while. The word of optimism, right. and I have a quite a complex relationship with optimism myself. So you know, I, I've, I'm I seem to in my reflective practice, I seem yeah. to get a lot of feedback around the perception that I'm a very optimistic person. Yeah. Which is great, which is great. Um, but part of the work um, that we do at, at um, TMS is that we have a whole range of psychometric profiles and, and one of them actually measures optimism. Right. We call, we call it the opportunity orientation profile. And it does give you a measure, you know, a, a piece of data that says on a scale of what, what, 0 to 100, yeah. how optimistic are you and how much optimistic energy do you direct at the world of work? Um, and I come out as pretty average on that. Which okay. actually resonates with me. You know, I don't see myself as particularly high on optimism or low on optimism. Just that oh, it's there. But okay. somehow other people seem to see that in me, and I've right. I've, I've forever been fascinated by that. Um, so that's really what drawn me. To, it, it's it's drawn me to that topic for a little while now. And the more yeah. um, I've looked at literature, the more interested I've become in you know areas like optimism and. You know the counterbalance to it, which would be pessimism. Yeah. Um, you know how it connects to things like unconscious bias, mm. um, like happiness, mm. um, and and crucially, how can we use all of that, you know, to help us, um, you know, live our better lives, as as, as you say. Nice. Because it, there's a lot of information in there that I think many of us can use to sort of enhance the way that we look at the world. And and look at it with a yeah. with a measured way. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And I like the way that you um, introduced there as well of that there is the balance. Well, the balance. I don't know if balance is the right word. The opposite, right? The the opposite to mm. optimism is pessimism. And so it'd be interesting, uh, you know, as we talk through this to to talk about that as well. Yeah. Because one of the things that I've been quite clear on as we talk, as I've been doing the episode so far, is that positive psychology isn't just about the good stuff it's not just mm-hmm. about being happy and it's not just about you know dismissing reality it's about how do we think usefully about what's happening to us now if i think of things in an optimistic way what can that allow for mm. the opposite is also a valid question as well if i take a pessimistic view on stuff then what can that do for me as well and you know the the words themselves have certain connotations and it doesn't have to mean that if you're pessimistic you're a negative person at least i don't think so you know and it's like if we describe um anger or sadness people tend to have visceral reactions to those as oh you you can't be angry it's a really bad thing to be Mm. or you can't be sad because that's just a that's not going to be a helpful thing and actually if you think about it they are very useful processes and reactions to have context dependent of course but it's it's stuff like that which i i think it's just good for us to explore it is absolutely and i think the danger is when you've got those two kind of polarities there is that we see them as a spectrum that on one end you've got optimism and on one end you've got pessimism and you know throughout our lives we talk about you know people as Glass half empty, glass half full. Yeah. And at the risk of sounding like one of those cheesy motivational posters, <laughs> I think people miss the point there. Yeah. In that it's not 
about looking at the world in that way. So, you know, are you a glass half empty person or a glass half full person? But realizing that at different points in your life, the glass will be half empty or glass half full. Yeah. And also that the glass is refillable. <laughs> you know? And I think optimism is a lot yeah. like that. You know, it, it, it's, it is like a refillable reservoir that, that you draw on. It's like this, it's this psychological resource mm. that gives you the expectancy that things are going to work out for the best. Mm-hmm. And you can pull from that reservoir when you need it, you know, and it, at times of struggles or challenges or when there's a difficult decision to be made, it's there for you as a resource, but it does have finite limits. And right. you know, this may have happened to you, Suk, where, you know, and, and for your listeners, you may have found that you've got to a point in your life where you've, you've reached, you know, the limits of your optimism and, and you know, yeah. you're on the reserves, yeah. Um, and and you do need to do things to top that up on and, right. and refill it. Mm. I really like the way you describe that as as a psychological resource, and that's what it is, right? It's it's mm. a construct which we have, and it's something which we've been able to articulate, and people have recognised as a trait for a very long time, mm. and certainly in all. Psychological research around personality and uh, you know, the human condition—it is a regular feature that comes up in that. You know, around and not just that. Obviously, there are other traits as well that people can have around extroversion, neuroticism, and all that kind of stuff that comes with it, right? The, the traditional traits that we that we learn about. So, so it is useful, I find, to know that it is a recognised value trait and. The value of it is something which, you know, how do you how do you react to when people sometimes think of optimism as as a, as a naivety or or as a naive way of thinking or being? What's your reaction to that? Yeah, I, it's an interesting one, isn't it? If you if you hold up, you know, if you were to ask a group about examples of highly optimistic people, yeah. very often they will bring up fictional characters. Right, like Pollyanna. Pollyanna is a classic one. You know, this 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 uh, kid who's had, you know, the world thrown at her in the worst possible ways, but yet she still finds time to play. Um, oh, I think is it called the glad. I think it's called the glad game. Right. Where she just figures out a way to find things that she can be glad about every single day. Yeah. And um, on one hand, that is a little bit naive. Yeah. <laughs> and a little bit saccharine in her case. Yeah. Um, but it. It is actually, you know, in terms of talking about sort of strategies, and mm. actually that's something that we can there's something we can learn from there around gratitude and appreciation. Um, but yes, I think the the, the literature around optimism um, certainly early on, if you if you're looking at the work of someone like Martin Seligman, mm. it, it is often classified as something that's um, about you know unwavering self belief. Yes. Um, you know, um, focusing on the best scenarios and ignoring the potential yeah. faults. And I think in extreme cases, you do meet people like that, don't you? Yeah. You know, and they they're very often in positions of leadership. You know, yeah. entrepreneurs. You know, Absolutely. people who who have run their own business, and they probably needed that kind of trait yeah. in order to convince themselves and other people that whatever they're doing is going to be a success. Yeah. 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 It, it, it's almost there's there's almost an, an evolutionary 
argument to be made there that it would be something that would be built in to help us not only be that ourselves, but respond positively to people who behave in that way when they're around us. Yeah. So back to, you know, Seligman's work again, you know, he, he did quite a lot of work with um, analyzing presidential speeches. Yeah. So, you know, and one of the things he found is that the language that was used in those speeches mm. had an enormous effect around who was eventually voted in to positions of leadership. Yeah. And surprise, surprise, it was the language of optimism. You know, and we do see this again and again. This, you know, Barack Obama's classic, you know, yes, we can campaign. Yeah. It's so easy to get on board with. Um, and people respond to it. Yeah. We do seem to have some sort of in, inner wiring around responding to that to that level of optimism and the language of optimism. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I guess you know you in, in the way that you started with that piece, you've also helped to helped us to kind of define what we mean when we talk about optimism. You know, mm. that unwavering self-belief in um, and in, in trusting that there is going to be a positive outcome. And you, and you go, yeah, okay, right. Uh, and I, I'm with you. You know, many many of our leaders have a perceived level of high optimism, mm-hmm. which is not, yeah, which is probably the right thing. Like, you, like just as you described, it's, it's probably the right thing for them to have as a trait and a quality. Otherwise, you know, if it's an entrepreneur and they've started a business, it probably wouldn't get off the ground. Mm-hmm. You know, if you were pessimistic about it before you've even started. That's just probably not a great place to be. Mm. I don't see how your business would be a success if you're a pessimist and you're starting off that business, you know. And then at the same time, I wonder, um, and maybe this is jumping to something that um, I know that in our um, pre-prep, in our prep that we did for, for this, we were going to also talk about can it can it be overused? Mm. So, you know, it's it, I totally get that it's useful to help people get to a certain point in their life so from what you know and this is going to be an interesting one to explore what happens when it's overused then Mm. what's that what what does that look like yeah well i think in in the same way that you know optimism can sometimes mistakenly be seen as as naivety Hmm. it can also mistakenly be seen as necessarily a positive thing right so you used um used an example um, earlier on, Sukaran, sort of looking at where optimism is linked to different other other traits, and yeah, yeah. classically where it's it's um, been linked is that of resilience. Yeah, you know, I, was, I was reading in the um, the British Psychological Society brought out an article a couple of months ago, and they were looking at leadership and what does it take to be a contemporary leader, what sort of traits are there, right. and they were talking about um, having psychological capital. Yeah, it was a great term, I thought, and they and they broke it down into into the different sub elements, and one of them was optimism, and one of them was resilience. And I thought, okay, yeah, great, of course, you know, yeah. those words of the minute. But and, and you can see what where that comes from. But those two things are very different. I think there's there's a there's often a, a misunderstanding that the most optimistic person in the room is necessarily the most resilient person in the room, and where you see that myth being busted is if you start to look at how some of those strengths might be overplayed, mm. particularly if you're working with someone who's, who's in a leadership role or, or a position of power, 
it can it can very often lead people down the wrong road. So, you know, on one hand, you know, if you're talking about somebody with, you know, unwavering self belief and, and, and the underpinning principle that things are gonna work out, yeah, on a personal level, they might just take on way more than they should. You know, right. overcommitment right. is a classic yeah. one, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. With 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 um with that. Oh yeah, it'll be fine, we can say yes to that. Well, actually things when things pile up, reality sets in. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and again, thinking about people who just focus on best case scenarios and um, are likely to very much see the opportunities mm. at the expense of the obstacles. Yeah. They may ignore the possible realities of the situation mm-hmm. and may end up you know, leading a team or leading a business down a very risky path. Yeah. Um, and And that can often, you know, it can challenge their their leadership you know we, we there's a there's a term around social proof you know so every now and again if you're talking about the unknown mm-hmm. you can imagine the best case scenario and that's quite easy to do but once that's happened and we know what a decision the implications of a decision have have been the social proof is seen by everybody yeah and so if you know if a leader was to make a, a wildly optimistic decision you know, three, four times, and it didn't work out for the best, social proof would show that their judgment is lacking. Yeah, yeah. You know, despite being optimistic, right. there's an issue of judgment there. Yeah. Um, so I think that, yeah, there's, 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 quite a, there's quite a bit there around um, challenging optimism and recognizing that whilst it is a great psychological resource, yeah. it's, it's part of a toolkit, and it's, yeah. it's a small part of a toolkit in in anyone's um, toolbox um, as that, I think the, the BPS tool about their psychological capital is, is part of that makeup, yeah. not, the, not the be all and end all. Um, I guess another one is um, looking back, you know, optimism is often seen about, you know, looking forward and thinking about the future and imagining the future. Um, it can also be applied to the past, you know, so whilst on one hand, optimism yeah. can be about confidence, Looking back, somebody with very high levels of optimism might deny the significance of a negative event that's happened. Yes. Yeah. It gives you deniability. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting as well, right? Because then that, is that about, yeah, where I've spoken before in different, in other podcasts around, we, we have to accept what, either reality that's happening to us, or if something has happened to us, which is a traumatic thing, or a real challenging time in mm. our history do we have uh, an un, um, a, a disproportionate view of what that is in the positive and if we do then how is that a useful thing for us yeah is that mm-hmm. is that just being a, is that just the person's psychological defense mechanism so that they can you know that they they it's too challenging a thing to confront and so they they almost choose to take a optimistic view of what that was in order to allow them to carry on with their daily life because if they try and confront it it may be too damaging in some way for them it's true there's there's a um 
Harvard professor called Dan um, Ariely, who's done a lot of work into this yeah. area. He talks about prospecting, mm-hmm. so which is he, he describes as a uniquely human thing to do, the ability to look into the future and imagine what it might be like. Yeah, right. And optimism really comes to play there. Um, you know, if you were to, and, and a classic experiment that he does is, is get people to think about, you know, your favorite band 10 years ago. So, can you think of yours, Sook? My favourite band, ten favorite years band ago. Ten years ago. Uh, okay, so first of all, they had to be around ten years ago. Do they have to be ten around ten years ago? <laughs> <laughs> um, let me see. Um, it doesn't have to be cool. Don't worry about it making no, it. No, cool. I'm, I'm just. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying to think. Um, is there a band that I listened to that would probably have been around 10 years ago? God, I don't know. Go on, I'm going to have to defer to you on this one. Okay. Um, yeah. So, let's, there is a band there somewhere that you were listening okay. to a lot yes. 10 years yeah, ago. Yeah. Um, and think about how much you'd pay to go and watch them play live. Yeah. Okay, so you've got a figure in your head. So, if that band were to be... Um, you know, out touring again in the next couple of weeks and you had an opportunity to get some tickets, Yeah. how much would you pay to see them? Um, okay. So is the question, would I pay more or less than I paid yes. previously? Mm, I wouldn't mind paying more if I enjoyed the experience the first time round. Mm-hmm. So on the assumption that I did, and they were coming up to play again, and I could buy tickets for it, it would have to be in and around the same in order to for me to go. Yeah, I, I, I'm happy to pay that. If it were if it were significantly more, I'd probably shy away from it. Mm. Mm. Okay, go on. Yeah. Which is interesting because, you know, when you adjust for inflation over 10 years, particularly prices can go up a lot, you know, significantly. And often, you know, people who are around 10 years ago can get away with charging an awful lot um, of money to to go and see for you for for a a special one-off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. And and Dan found exactly what you've just been saying that is, is, um, if the price was about the same, they'd probably go, depending on if they still enjoyed them. But if the price was significantly more, they wouldn't. Yeah. Um, but if you think about your favourite band right now and what you might pay to go and see them play live mm-hmm. and then imagine going to see that band play again in 10 years' time. Right. There's a similar effect, right? Yeah. Imagining, yeah. The future, imagining your future self, we have a tendency to almost put a freeze frame on who we are at the moment. Yeah. Right. In prospecting forward into thinking about your future self we just imagine that things are either going to be the same or much, right. much better. Yeah, yeah. Whereas if we look back, we realize that our lives are a bit of a mixture of good stuff, bad stuff, yeah. average, middle-of-the-road stuff. But somehow, our minds just transform that. And I, I like what you said there about the idea. It's almost a protective quality that... Yeah. And, and I, I have read optimism described in that way as, as it's like a psychological immune system mm. that stops you going forward into the future and going, oh my gosh, you know, what if this would happen? Or, oh, you know, oh no, this, you know, this might turn out terribly. 
yeah. But it, it gives you a different filter when you're prospecting into the future. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, it, I get it. It, it does give us um, some interesting things to think about, particularly when you know we're thinking about planning for the future. Pensions yeah. is a classic yeah, one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, people people generally expect that they'll need less money than they will when they retire. Right. Or for setting up a business. Yeah. We have a tendency to imagine that future as a really rosy, optimistic place without necessarily looking at what, what could go wrong or planning for other eventualities. Right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah, and it's... Uh, I, that, that, that's a good piece of work that you've shared there around um, the Dan Ariely stuff. Um, and I'm going to ask if you can, if, if there's a, an online resource that people can go in and check out, we'll, we'll try and get into the show notes so people can sure. look into that a bit more as well. And then I, I, I guess we're also starting to discuss the role that pessimism plays. Mm-hmm. And how, when you described earlier that people see them on a spectrum, and it probably doesn't need to be seen or, or thought of in that way. It's just because they're see, described as opposites. Mm. And you know, the definitions probably do describe them in that way as well. Is How how useful then is, is it to be pessimistic? I mean, I guess it is because it then provides that balance of, well, just just caution your optimism, I suppose. Mm. You know, it's that unwavering self-belief, that's fine. You can believe everything you need to. And at the same time, exercise some caution around how either that's perceived by others or how that may you may railroad a certain decision-making process because of your extreme level of optimism that you may be experiencing. Mm-hmm. I think um, it is a question of balance. Yeah. It has to be, doesn't it? It has to be around a balance. And for me, it is it is around mm. having something that's in your toolkit. Right. And, and for, 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 um, for people who recognize that they are, have a tendency to be more towards the op- optimism, sometimes it's just having some questions to make sure you ask yourself um, that, right. would, that would just bring that balance in to your thinking and your decision making. You know, and then back to back to looking at resilience. So, yeah. Yeah. who's more resilient? Sort of the the restaurateur who sets up a a new restaurant chain at this point in time, this interesting economic climate that we find yeah, ourselves yeah, in, yeah. that only imports from Europe. Yeah. Versus the restaurateur who sets up a restaurant that specialises, places eyes in in sort of UK trade right. and UK industry. Um. Yeah, it makes it a smaller, a smaller business. Maybe just a sort of food cart stand rather than a, a chain of restaurants. Yeah. So which one of those would be more resilient? Oh, that's a good question, isn't it? And and yeah, in, built into that are questions of yeah. Therefore, is one more optimistic about their chances than the other? Hmm. Because it and and or is one more pessimistic than the other? Cause it doesn't mean that just because the sole operator setting up just their one is any more pessimistic about their chances mm. they may be just as optimistic about where it could lead them and the freedom it could afford them or the the lifestyle it could afford them or what have you yeah so you know so we don't know those things 
and you know, unless we have those kinds of discussions. Mm. And I think when it comes to pessimism, we have some you know, TMSDI, we have some data around optimism and that, and that spectrum and that we've looked at over the years around yeah. whether it drifts, whether it whether it arrives. I've also become familiar with an author called um, Tally Sherrott. She's um, she's a cognitive neuroscientist. She, she's operating out of um, UCL. Nice. Um, and her work around optimism is is pretty wide. It, you'll find her on TED as well. Okay. Um, what she's shown is that around 80% of people have a bias towards optimism, which yeah. would mean the remainder um, have a tendency towards mild to more severe pessimism. Okay. Yeah. That's which is um, yeah, more of a pessimistic bias. And you've alluded to this slightly, I think, earlier on, that that can sometimes be correlated with depression. Yeah. In more right. extreme circumstances. Right. Yeah, and I, I, I think one of the things I often read about when, when I try to understand mental health disorders and illnesses in different ways is that it disrupts what what many may seem as a normal and regular way of thinking. Mm. And that's something which people sometimes I think can uh, dismiss and may not may not fully appreciate that yeah if if you're in the throes of depression for example it's not easy to just suddenly think your way positively out of it or to be optimistic about things. No. Because you're you're you are disrupted from thinking in those ways. That's what depression does to a person, and so it's not that they are trying to be pessimistic. It's that they find it to, or the um, what one way to be able to think about it is that they can't think optimistically. Not that it's not, and it's not because they're thinking pessimistically. Yes. And building on that, there's an argument to be made. If it's about bias, maybe people who've experienced depression are simply just more realistic. Yeah. Than the 80% of people in the world who have a bias towards optimism. Right. Um, you know, it, it, it could well be that the case, um, that, that it's just about realism. Yeah. And, and we classify it and we tag it as depression. Yeah. Whereas it's just a different kind of bias. Could be. I like that. Mm. Yeah, I do, uh, and yeah, it, there's there's some stuff there as well, which I what, what I do find interesting is that once we start talking about topics like this, is that it does help us to think about how how can it be more accessible to people who don't, yeah, you know, who are fortunate to have good mental health and they're fortunate to be able mm. to get on and have a good daily life experience against those who have these very real challenges and and they're getting on and. They're trying to find their own ways to navigate the world where things and concepts like this just aren't as accessible to them as they might be to the populace, you know? Yeah. I, I think um, without wanting, and I, I think this, the topic and the subject of clinically diagnosed depression, yeah. as you say, is something that you know, people shouldn't be wanting to try and think themselves out of or build strategies around. It's a much more complex approach that, that would need right. to be taken there. But I think just in terms of, you know, practical tips for looking out for this in, you know, friends, colleagues, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. you know, family members, um, at the risk of oversimplifying things, just there's, there's uh, often referred to as the three P's of pessimism. Right. Um, 
The first one is about permanence. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, statements like, I'll never get this done. Yeah. You know, this is always going to, this never worked, you know, this never worked then, it's never going to work again. It always happens to me. It always happens to me, absolutely. And I'm building on that one. Another P is around personal. Yeah, Yeah, so, yeah, it always happens to me. me. I'm rubbish at this. Yeah. Um, You know, I can't believe I made such a mess of this. Yeah, why can I never get this right? Absolutely, why can I never get this right? And then a a third one which is interesting um, is around pervasive. Mm. So one bad thing or one negative situation pervades into others. So um, just because I can't, life has shown me I can't trust this person, I can't trust any of these people. Right, right would be a kind of a classic example. So yeah. just looking out for those three Ps around pessimism can just be something to be to be aware of. That's um, really nice. Let's cover those again because I think it's yeah. absolutely worth it. So looking out for permanence. So are people describing things in a way which sets them out to be a forever thing? Okay. The other one is the personal. Do they tend to talk about themselves in in those ways? And the third is pervasiveness. So do people extrapolate out in ways which are unhelpful? Okay. Perfect. There's another I love that. You. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. That's so good. That's such a nice way to be able to help friends, family members, loved ones identify if someone they know may be experiencing pessimism in a way which is just unhelpful to them. Mm. And you can pick so, up on the words in those sentences where, you know, yeah. whether it's permanence or pervasion or personal, um, around just repositioning, reframing some of those statements yeah, right. You know, um, some of Carol Dweck's work into fixed growth mindset yeah. plays really beautifully around this, around just yeah, making yeah. sure that rather than using words like never or can't yeah. or always, just working working around, you know, the trying and not yet. Yes, yeah. right. Yeah. Which can have just an enormous effect on someone's optimism. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. And I, I'm, I'm trying to think through if if um, some of this links into the the reframing and that aspect of stuff and how we can challenge our thinking is um, something which I think is a technique used with uh, cognitive behavioral therapy Mm. where people have certain behaviors and have certain actions and there's a belief that they may hold which is something around I can't do this And through CBT techniques, it's one of the methodologies they teach is about challenging your own self-narrative on that stuff. I can't do this. Mm. Well, I have done it before, so I can do this. I'm just struggling right now. Mm. Uh, If I'm struggling right now, what can I do to help move myself out of that? Do I need to get a different support? Do I need to give myself a break? Those kind of things which it it takes skill to do that and yeah it, it does take the right kind of support 
which is where I think, um, which, which is why we, which is why we have you know, plenty of people mm -hmm. who train to be therapists and counselors and what have you to be able to help people move through those things. Um, I, I guess the other thing that just comes to mind as well is that I think we do just need to be quite clear with our listeners that we, we and I don't think we are. I, I just want to be clear on it that we're not conflating that pessimism is akin to depression, um, and that it is Absolutely. just it is it is more of a um, a psychological trait which, uh, which, 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 what, Mark? Which, what? 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 I'm, I'm struggling where to finish this piece, actually. Yeah. I, I would classify it rather than a trait, which potentially might apply it's fixed. Yeah. And that can't be moved or can't be shifted. It's a tool that's there to be used. It's a psychological tool. Nice. So an example yeah, would be. That's good. Somebody yeah. like, um, yeah. okay, so some of, some of your listeners may have come across this, um, this before with uh, Charles Darwin's approach, and he, he um, coined a term around steel manning. Okay. So you, you've heard about the idea of building a straw man yeah. around an argument. So you yeah. have an argument or a project, let's build a straw man to, to support this. And what he found very early on when he was trying to convince people about his theories around evolution is that um, the naysayers would just, just weren't ready to listen and they, they would shoot him down very quickly yeah. and he didn't have a comeback. He didn't have everything there with him to be able to sure. argue his points back. So he went out and listened to their arguments very, very carefully, went away and then built counter arguments that were equally as strong. Right. And I think that's something that people can do in you know, from almost taking a pessimistic viewpoint in the workplace or with, you know, yeah, yeah. Um, and we talk about it as, as building a steel man. So when you've got something ready to go, whether it's a project or a proposal or an idea, actually going out and actively finding contradictory evidence that it won't work. Nice. First, then building obstacle, um, pathways around that obstacle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or obstacles, whatever they might be. Yeah. I really like that. That's such a. I mean, it's it, it, it's a, it's it's a technique which I think people will be familiar with. In that, people will you know, our managers and leaders often say to us, "What's the worst that can happen? Go away, find out what's you know." We we stress test things, particularly in like IT and tech and apps and what have you, or. Um, around organizational resilience, we may have to stress test, you know, things like the fire alarm, right? When you do your weekly fire test, that's stress testing. You know, do we have the capability and resilience to be able to make sure that we can operate at our best? I, I tell you where this is um, starting to take me is that is that we we probably underplay the importance that pessimism can allow for then, mm. and. And, uh, and it's in that context of resilience that if I want to be able to have that capability to bounce back, to lift myself up when, when, a, when I'm facing a particularly hard time, how, am I, how do I know what that needs to be for me? Because if I've only ever done things which have kept me optimistic and in that um, future-orientated place without considering where things might go wrong, have I set myself up to fail? Mm. And uh, I think this maybe 
tying into what you were describing earlier around the overplaying of optimism that we we take it so far that we don't allow <clears throat> we don't allow a counter narrative to be part of that i don't know force of nature you know to mm. you know this has to be the right way forward if it's not the right way forward then you're the wrong person to be with me and you, you, I, I don't need you in my life, that type of... Mm. I think absolutely. it's particularly particularly the case where we know that we have a bias towards optimism right. and that bias isn't just a psychological one but the evidence would suggest it's, in, it's, in, it's a physiological one that actually yeah. our brains are wired that way. Um, Tally Charot, who's the neuroscientist I quoted earlier on, um, she carried out some studies looking at encoding of information and memories. So we know that, you know, frontal lobes, very important in terms of encoding memory, planning, all the kind of higher order functions that are going on there. Um, And and her team found that um, people tend to encode more when they're hearing positive information compared to when they're hearing negative information. Right. So those frontal lobe scans, when they were when they were when people were hearing positive information, they just lit up. Yeah. But when they were hearing negative information, they were lighting up but nowhere near as much. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. So, you know, we we're happy to change our beliefs, change our thoughts more readily when that information is presented to us positively. Yeah, that is interesting, isn't it? And then also, I wonder, I wonder how much, in a different way, and I'm just thinking, I'm picking up on this just more because of the word bias, and I'm I'm taken to unconscious bias as well. Then, mm-hmm. in to thinking about what what part does do our different biases play a part in in how optimistic we are? And I'm not asking if you know the answer to that. I'm just kind of exploring this, you know, around if 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 I have a if I have a belief that I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna try not to use something controversial. So let's uh, <laughs> so if 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 I, if I have a belief that Apple products are superior to Android products, then am I gonna be more optimistic about my use of an Apple product? because I have that belief in the product. And am I going to be more pessimistic, therefore, about the Android product? And I wonder if there's a part of our unconscious bias, or confirmation bias, I suppose, that one would be a case of. So do you follow me here? Do you see where I'm going I with do. this? I do. I'm with you. I'm so with you. I, I, wonder if, uh, I wonder if optimism can heighten a bias unwittingly because we don't because we already have a belief in something and therefore the optimism we may have about something is overplayed and we may not realize that's what's happening to us i think that's absolutely what's what happens and and it has been demonstrated in in um kind of research environments a number of times um this isn't a research environment but i do remember this very um vividly i'm a because i'm a psychology geek i'm an enormous fan of um darren brown i love darren brown much you know we've talked about this before haven't we? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so a few years ago darren had this special called the secret of luck where he right, went right. to a little village and he he put in that village a magic dog 
which was supposed to increase people's look if they came and tapped I it. I remember this. Do you remember this one? Yeah. yeah. And in that particular show, he, he came across somebody who was considered a pessimist, a, a real character in the community. And he carried out a variety of social experiments where he would present this individual with a number of opportunities to either win money or, you know, have increased the size of their business. Right. And what he found was just, you know, absolutely baffling, but it does make a lot of logical sense, is that, that it was about perception. Yeah. That, that bias towards optimism, um, which wasn't there in this individual's case, is something that just allows us to open up and see opportunities. Yeah. And even when they might not obviously be there. On the other side, even when optimi- you know, opportunities are yeah. staring you in the face, right, right. they're just not seen in that way. They're not viewed as, a, as an opportunity or, or a chance to, to increase whatever it is you want to increase, to increase your happiness. Yes. Um, yeah, yeah. So there is, yeah, I, th- I think there's, um, there's definitely an element of, of how that bias towards optimism can influence the way in which we see the world. Mm, Absolutely. Mm, it is about mm, perception. Mm. And then I guess, uh, the, the, I, I wonder, does that mean that we have to be cautious if we find that we are optimistic people? I think it can be. I think it can be. I remember I was working with, quite, quite closely with um, um, a, a small consulting organisation a couple of years ago, and they, there were there were three of them in the business. Um, two of them um, were kind of practitioners and facilitators, and they went away to a conference, came back full of energy, and um, singing the praises of this individual that they'd met that they wanted to merge businesses with. It was going to be huge. Right. It was going to be a great, um, you know, future for the business, and it was just going to lead them to bigger and better things, and, you know, it was all looking fantastic. Yeah. Um, the third person in the business who hadn't met this individual was a little sceptical. Okay. Not just naturally, but in, in terms of that situation, but by nature. Okay. Uh, and she went away and did what most people would do, I guess, which is around the whole due diligence Due piece. diligence, yeah. Yeah, saw what their business was looking like, and sure enough, discovered that their business was about to go under. Oh, right. And maybe about four or five months left before they ran out of cash. So that I mean, story could have wow. ended very, very differently if that third person hadn't been involved. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And it was, yeah, back to your point about balance, you know, that, that could have ended up being catastrophic for both businesses. Yeah. But because there was an individual in that team who brought balance around... Um, Optimistic, pessimistic, realistic <laughs> approaches, however you yeah. want to classify it. Yeah. Um, it meant that things, you know, the judgment was not impaired. Yeah. And actually they were able to make a really um, well-informed decision about what to do. Yeah, nice. See, and the other thing that you just, you, you reminded me that um, I thought about earlier on when we were talking about this and you used some of the, you used another description. Um, and, and that was a really good example there. Thanks for that, Mark. Is... I wonder what uh, um, I wonder the part that optimism plays in our judgment, or rather the other way as well. I wonder what part. I wonder if we are able to make better judgments because we're optimistic, or if optimism can impair the quality of the judgment that we need to make. 
Mm. You know, so um, yeah. If uh, I'm going to go back to the Apple Android example, mm. right? So if if I'm um, if I recognise, so if if we go back to the Apple Orange Apple Android yeah. um, example, so if if the um, for sake of argument, um, if I was to if I needed to update my product, and I am currently with Apple, and I realize that there's an Android product which is of equal um, capability and everything else that comes with it, and it's at a cheaper price, would my optimism in the Apple product impair my judgment for buying the thing which financially would make more sense to me? Just because I have a belief and an, and I'm optimi more optimistic about what one product can do over another one, and I'm just trying to use this as an example of trying mm, to figure out you know it's an example I think of of our judgment and you know so I know for example that I have actively chosen Android products over Apple products, and that's. But I, and I don't know if that's because I'm optimistic or pessimistic about one or the other, and or if it's um, about a, a kind of just a different attitude towards Apple products. Uh, so yeah, and I'm almost okay. trying not to get. Let me it, give you my take on that one because I'm I'm in the opposite camp. So, okay. Okay. So yeah, I'm lifelong. No, actually, I no. I I'm a I was originally a very big. Um, advocate of PCs. I used to build my own PCs when I was younger. Right. Um, and then I discovered Apple products and fell in love. Yes. And, you know, I you know I'm, I'm one of those classic sheep that people yeah. talk about you know, <laughs> Apple products. Um, so, in that particular scenario, my yeah. take on that would be I am pessimistic about how um, easy it would be for me to switch ecosystems between right. Apple and Android, yeah. and that overrides my optimism about just technology in general. I recognize that there are other, you know, great looking, fantastically efficient and powerful devices out there. Yes. Okay. But my pessimism overrides my optimism in that I think it's going to take me much longer to learn a new system than I am with my comfortable. So therefore, is your judgment impaired, Mark? And this isn't a, this isn't a, this isn't, I'm trying also to make sure that's not a judgment based question. It's, <laughs> Is your judgment impaired because of the, of what you've just described there? Yes, necessarily it has to be. I'm I'm not right. making a rational decision because if I was, I'd probably sit down and I would spend, you know, a few days with each product and I'd work out yeah, what yeah. I like okay. best. But but it yeah. but it's such a strong sense of yeah. I'd I'd rather not learn a new system that I wouldn't yeah. even yeah. want to yeah. try. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, good point. Yeah. It is that it has impaired my judgment in this case. But I, but I, you know, and what I'm, what I've been trying, what I've been cautious just in myself as we've been talking throughout the rest, throughout the podcast episode so far is, I'm, I'm trying, I'm really trying not to draw a parallel with Brexit, and what we're experiencing around that. Hmm. Yeah, and and I'm really cautious on this. That is there a set of thinking around the or, or so for the people who are ardent brexiters do they have or rather is their optimism about it impairing their 
judgment ability on whether or not it's the right decision. Mm. And and equally the other way, anybody who voted Remain, are they too pessimistic about the opportunities that Brexit might afford us that they can't see the optim that they can't see or they can't be optimistic about it because they're too pessimistic about it. Hmm. I wondered whether we'd end up talking about this. <laughs> <laughs> because I I made a little prediction to myself a couple of years ago around this, yeah, around right. thinking about Dan Ariely's research and thinking about prospecting into the future. Right. You know, he, he his research would would have predicted a remain vote because people tend to be happier with what they know and yes. what's fixed yeah, and what yeah. they're familiar with as opposed to an unknown and yeah. unfamiliar future. And that's not how things went. Not how things of went. course. Yeah. I think that there could be something. I think you're absolutely right. There, there, there is a level of optimism that's clouding judgment around it's happening, therefore we should make the best of it. Yeah. And therefore it is going to be good. Yeah. It? And yeah, yeah, yeah. I hear a lot of this rhetoric at the moment, um, and, and I think that a lot of that is is trying to influence the the country around, you know, a, to create more of a climate of optimism around yeah. this huge milestone event, which is is going to be a defining event for generations to come. Yeah. Um, and for me, the, the the piece which I think we probably haven't discussed yet around optimism is. At what stage do we should can evidence and data and information help us be more or less optimistic about what that future might be? Mm. Which, and I think this is a piece where I personally struggle with how how the whole approach to Brexit is being taken. Is I you know, at, a, at an intellectual level, I understand what that is going to happen, so I've accepted that. And that's fine. What I struggle with is the evidence that is regularly being presented, which outlines just how poorly prepared we are for Brexit. Mm. So therefore, I am pessimistic about what Brexit might allow for because everything, well, I say everything, many of the things that I read and come across inform me that we are so ill-prepared for what that can be. And i tell you where this really got me was that we didn't have to set down our stall as early as we did. We completely had it within our um, authority to to set the deadline, say, for example, six years hence, in which time we prepared as thoroughly and as properly as is appropriate. So when we get to that stage, then we would be able to quite confidently turn around to the British public and say here's all the things that we've set out we've made great we've actually made proper plans for everything we're not trying to fumble our way through we're not trying to figure this out as we go along we're not making wild and silly claims about things here's the things we've actually been able to and when I realized that that was a possibility but we just didn't choose to go down that route it 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 raises my level of pessimism about where Brexit can head to. Mm. And and so there's... Uh, yeah, I, I'm just expressing that. I'm not, I'm not necessarily mm. taking that anywhere. 
If you, if we were to flip this round and look at the other side of it, are there any areas, things, people surrounding that scenario that you feel optimistic about? That's a good question. So, as an individual, I, I tend to try and want to be optimistic about most things. So that that the future is unknown does not mean that in any way that it will be bad. And the 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 the, the things that we spend a lot of our time hearing about around customs unions and trade trade um, deals and what have you are the things which make it difficult to be optimistic. I do have a sense of optimism around this is an unknown pathway for the future of the UK. That's quite exciting in that we could forge a whole new path for the future and it could be the it could be a really good thing that happens for us as a as a nation, as a country. And I'll be honest, that that that, that tends to be a thought which doesn't happen often enough because I'm being regularly fed with too many other sources of news and information which feeds the pessimism mm. because there's, it's and were I to or were there to be better information provided to us or more confidence in here's where we're going this is what this means and this is how we're going to be better because of it that would I think engender a better sense of optimism because then we have clarity on where it can get to. Mm. So, and I'm just going to step back a bit. I think that's where I'm also then wondering, you know, what place does evidence and data and information help us in being able to be more optimistic about anything, mm. you know? And if I take a completely different example, if you, if you receive a cancer diagnosis mm. and you... And, and your doctor or your GP or the consultant or whoever gives you poor information about the severity of it, the operation that needs to happen, the likelihood that it's going to be successful. How much or not of that is going to help you to be optimistic? You know, and clearly we know and they and the medical professionals know that the more they are able to help you to understand the reality of your situation can help you to be either optimistic or pessimistic about your future you know if it's at the end stages and it's terminal cancer mm -hmm. then it doesn't matter how much information they give you you're only going to be pessimistic about it because your life chance has just been completely taken away from you mm -hmm. but if it's at a stage which they can intervene and it allows them to be able to uh remove the cancer, treat it, and it goes away, then you can be optimistic about it. Mm. And I wonder if that's a different way to be able to you know, balance what we're talking about here or handle what we're talking about here around the data, yeah. the evidence, the information that we receive. I think it is. It, it is. It's about a body of evidence. It's about the story that life has told you. Yeah. And then the, the, the decision that you make to put a particularly positive or negative um, effect on that. I've, I've right. had the right. privilege of talking to 
um, cancer survivors. Yeah. And it can be, it can really go either way. You can, you can have someone who comes back from an illness like that, um, who's made a full recovery, and they that changes their outlook on life, and they look yeah. to embrace everything new, and everything's a bonus, and you know right. everything's, um, you know, a gift. Yeah. On the other hand, it could be something that creates a sense of caution, and. Yeah. Um, you know, risk aversion because yeah. you wouldn't want to put yourself back in that position that you've experienced and you've felt so intensely. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, that that positioning around how you choose to view those past events and that data that, you know, that life has thrown at you mm. is very much um, surrounding this, this psychological resource. You know, that mm. that that experience of going through a, going through something um, a traumatic life event like that, it's going to take something out of your reservoir. Yeah. Optimism, isn't it? Yeah. You know, right back to the, that beginning analogy. And you can then choose to then top it up by, you know, yeah. going doing all, all kinds of other things. Or you can choose to leave it quite low. Mm-hmm. But it is a choice. It is a choice. Absolutely mm-hmm. it is. Yeah. All right, so let's. Uh, let, let, uh, I'm going to want to move this conversation just to, uh, I, I guess, its final place of what can we do? What, what, what can can people build their optimism? Hmm, I think so. I think um, for people who who feel like they have low optimism, there are some really simple things that you can do. And one of the things um, that was really that really drew me towards this podcast is that sort of the overarching theme, you know, around the, the three right. good things. Yeah. Um, I, I'm I'm not much of a journal keeper. In terms of practical tips, I think there are you know there are some really simple things that people can do to to boost their optimism. Yeah. Um, and as as with a lot of these strategies, it's the simple things that work best. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that attracted me to this podcast was the overarching theme of you know three good things. Um, and I think one one of the things that low optimism can sometimes and produces. Um, a cloud that does not allow you to be grateful and appreciate what's going right. on. Right. So um, there are many different types and styles of keeping gratitude journals or gratitude yeah. points. Um, I'm a big fan of the um, the five-minute journal approach, yeah. um, which is something I, I now do. It's a habit. I do it every day. And the idea is that at the end of the day, you note down three you know, fantastic things that happened Great. today. And that could be anything from, oh, I had this fantastic conversation with Sook, through to um, the sunshine was really bright on my walk into work this morning. So it can can be something from, you know, really big, monumental to something very small and, 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 you know, noticing a nice cloud formation or some some nice, (laughs) you know, box clubs in in the in the soil. Um, But crucially, there's another thing that adds on with the with the five minute journal approach, which is, um, is there one thing that you could have done to make today even better? Nice. Yeah, and yeah. that just, I think that ties in very nicely with optimism because it's about um, not necessarily pushing for more, but thinking about I, I could have personally had an influence on the day. Yeah. And over time, what's interesting is if you go back and look at that thing, sometimes you see some real trends. So for me, very often that one thing is, oh, I should have had some more sleep. Mm-hmm. I was feeling a bit tired towards the end of the day, and yeah. I could have easily resolved that. Or um, you know, I should have eaten better, or I should have gone for that run. 
<laughs> that I've been talking about for the last couple of days. And it, I, I keep mentioning it again and again and again, and it's obviously on my mind. Yeah. And over time, you can start to say, oh, yeah, actually, if I, if I change those things, it then has a more positive impact on the three amazing things right. a few days afterwards. If you do go on that run, you end up, it ends up becoming a really amazing thing. So it, yeah. it's, it's sort of self-propagating optimism yeah. with a gratitude journal like that. Um, I guess another simple thing, and, and you've alluded to this actually, Suki, is, is around arguing with yourself. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. You know, yeah. Having a bit of self-criticism in a way that allows you to challenge your thoughts. And for some people, they might want to have a trusted friend that they do this with. Right. Um, who, and you have an agreement between you that if there's something going on, you, you really want them to challenge your thinking around a particular area or an issue or a decision yeah. so that it will provide that balance. Um, and then I, another one, which is, I guess, a, a bit of a mantra, is, um, and it ties on this idea of optimism and pessimism being tools. So if you are in a situation where you're, you're not sure which direction to go, do you take the optimistic route or the pessimistic route? Yeah. A question to ask yourself is, what's the cost of being wrong? Yeah, okay. And of course, this can change depending on your situation. So, you know, if you're an engineer designing a new type of car, you probably want to take the pessimistic route there because you want to make sure all of those problems, all of those faults are ironed out before anyone gets in that car. Yes. But, you know, if you're just deciding, uh, I don't know, whether to um, go to the shops to buy some milk. Yeah. You know, and you're worried about what might happen on the way. Yeah. Relatively, the cost of you being wrong in terms of thinking something terrible might happen, it's probably not going not gonna to be the case. And that can sometimes help. Seligman calls this flexible optimism. Yeah. yeah. Flexing your approach according to the demands of the situation. Yeah. And that mantra of, you know, what's the cost of being wrong can just be a nice way of reframing the situation in a way that allows you to make that choice. It, uh, it amuses me because um, last week I was with my family and my, one of my twins... He said he'd read something on the news about an asteroid that was going to come close to Earth, and the way they, the headline said it, it said asteroid on collision course with Earth. And his brother, he he is a pessimistic kid, <laughs> mm-hmm. and he immediately gets taken to, oh my God, does that mean we're going to die, Dad? And these are like, you know, he, he, they're 11 years old now. And it, to an extent, it's just him being a bit playful. And at the same time, there is an element of, no, but Dad, is this actually true? Because right? they've just said it in the news, right? So why would they say it in the news if it wasn't true? Like, no, we're not going to, nothing's going to happen. Like, but Dad, what if it happens when we're asleep? Right? If, it's probably not. But how do you know it's not going to happen? It, it, <laughs> well, I, I, I have optimism. <laughs> I, 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 have, I have faith that it's not going to. Yeah, but Dad, what happens if tonight is our last night that we're all going to be together? And, uh, and, and, and so you know, where I ended it was, with, with, or I left him with a question of, okay, so let's say um, that it does happen. Oh, well, well uh, let, let's say that we all go to sleep. And we get up tomorrow, and everything's okay. What does that tell you? What would that tell you? 
And I just left that with with him to be able to just think through that final piece of, yeah, okay, well maybe it means that I, I thought a bit too negatively about this. Uh, yeah, and, and I did. The next day I asked him. I said, so, so we're all here. We're, we're all okay. And yeah, d d what do, what do you think now about what you asked last night? He said. It still could have happened. <laughs> All right, now you're just being narky. <laughs> it's wonderful, isn't it? It's wonderful that approach of, of, you know, even with the social proof that it didn't happen, yeah. it's still the question, well, what if it happens this time? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I like, those, um, I like those practical elements to help build a set of practices. And I think that's what it is, right? And I think this is what we talked about right up at the front end of the podcast, is that we don't often help ourselves to build these kinds of uh, psychological tools because we don't hear that we can do that. We don't, we don't have anyone tell us, this is how you can do this. And if you do that, it allows for you to have that reservoir of resilience and optimism and you can draw on that as you need to. So there's some nice, good ways to be able to do that. I think we've kind of done it, Mark. I think we've covered it. Mm. And my my challenge back would be just thinking about the, the scenario you just planned out. And I yeah, yeah. I can't remember the exact quote. I'm sure it's from Winnie the Pooh, where um, someone comes to Winnie the Pooh and and says, "Well, you know, what if the sky falls down today?" And Pooh's reply was, "What if it doesn't?" Right. You know, and that's Great. it. I love that. Just yeah, a quick yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Mark, but I want to say thank you very much for being my guest, my first guest on the Good Three Good podcast. You're so welcome. It's been a pleasure, Sue. Thank you for having me. And um, actually, as a final piece, um, we didn't cover this early on. Um, do you just want to let the good listeners uh, around us know what your business is and how they can get in touch with you if they choose to? Sure, absolutely. So um, I'm the managing director of a business called Team Management Systems Development International. We're based in York. We work all over the world. We produce psychometric tests that are used for um, building, managing, leading teams, um, looking at high performance, change management, and um, a whole range of leadership behavior. Um, you can find us at www.tmsdi.com, um, including that tool that I was talking about that measures optimism. Um, and if you wanted to engage with me, you'll find me on Twitter at that Mark Gilroy. I love that Twitter handle. It's so cool. Is that because there's another Mark Gilroy, or is it? There is. He's got a beard as well. He's got a beard, and he sells bubbles <laughs> in America. Um, and I, I was that. I was struggling for a, a handle, and um, somebody called up to the office and said, "Can I speak to that Mark Gilroy?" <laughs> and I said, "Right, that's it. Okay." We'll uh, we'll have that one. <laughs> love it. I love it. See, my name is that unique. That combination of my first name and surname. That is just, I'm never going to have that trouble of, you know, we have people who say, you know, one, two, three, four, whatever. At the end of the day, it's like, yeah, I'm just good. It's, it's fine. You're very lucky. Very I lucky. Am. I am. Thank you very much, Mark. And uh, to everybody who's listening, thank you for listening. And uh, by all means, as always, if you have enjoyed this, like. If you uh, want to subscribe, please do. If you want to comment on the episode, then um, do get in touch with us and do that. 
thank you very much and we'll see you next week